the the corporations and their their friends and they are the real masters behind the sport events the fact that these events are being staged or subsidized by the exploitation the surplus from workers in the global south and in the global north as well joining us today for another episode of the Sport, Social Justice, and Development Podcast. Today's podcast is hosted by Natan Levy and Jess Nachman, and we're joined by Chen Chen, who is currently an assistant professor of sport management at the NIAG School of Education. Chen takes an interdisciplinary approach to explore the intersection of sport with colonialism, as well as social, racial, and environmental justice. Additionally, he is the founding organizer of the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Caucus at the annual North American Society for the Sociology of Sport Conference. Chen is currently a member of the Board of Advisors at the Sporting Justice Collective and a full member of the Sport Ecology Group. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chen Chen. Thank you. Thank you for the generous introduction. My pleasure to be here. Um, as, as we get started, uh, I want to share that Jess and I are both admirers of your research and your and your work, such as naming the ghost of capitalism and sport management, uh, and more recently, sport and imperialism today, time for another anti-imperialist front. I was hoping you could share a little bit more about yourself and your interest in critical scholarship um, with the different intersections of sport. Thank you. Thank you very much for that generous introduction. Again, I would say that before I say anything, you know, we, uh, we are all, you know, inspired by and influenced by other people's work. And uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, the format on which those works are presented are with the single author's name. And I think that needs to be a, a little bit uh, complicated because no one's work is the sole uh, contribution of themselves. And I have to say that I personally benefit from many, many people, you know, who are alive, who are dead. And I would say that some of those works are with my name, the errors are mine, but I have to attribute to, uh, to some of these inspirations to many other people whose names are not there. So uh, a little bit about me, uh, I would say that you know, I I grew up in China. I uh, I love watching uh, sports on TV, watch the NBA, watch the soccer games in Europe uh, when I was a kid, and uh, obviously cheer for uh, the Olympic games for Chinese athletes uh, back in the day. And uh, when I was a bit younger, I wanted to be a sports journalist. Uh, not different than many other young people here in North America. I wanted to be involved in sport in some capacity, um, but I also had an interest in history and social issues more broadly. So uh, in college in China, I was an organizer of many intramural sport events, and I wrote for the uh, student newspapers sports section. Um, so um, I was also lucky enough to uh, continue to pursue my interest in sport and society, social issues, when I uh, got an opportunity to uh, um, study in Canada, uh, 
for my PhD degree at the University of Alberta on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. Uh, I would say that my stay, my, my experience living in Treaty 6 territory as an international student helped me develop a more critical understanding of not only sport, but the larger societal context that it is embedded in particular, the historical and ongoing settler colonial violence in so-called Canada. So I would say that those learnings helped me to reflect on my own trajectory of first pursuing a supposedly more advanced education in the West and reflecting on the uh, flow of knowledge and the product of sport. Where does the knowledge go? What's the direction of knowledge go from from the more supposedly more advanced parts of the world to the more developing parts of the world. And the product of sport seemingly follow the same uh, direction. And I have to retrospectively say that that might be a result of colonialism. And also I started to, you know, recognize and reckon with my own responsibility as an international student, a visitor, a newcomer to, um, to um, indigenous land, Turtle Island in North America. And, uh, and what that did was that it pushes me to uh, engage in all sorts of learnings beyond the walls of the university. Um, I was privileged to, uh, to be welcomed in some uh, community organizing activities and actions and processes with a group called Climate Justice Edmonton. Uh, I would say that those experiences, organizing uh, actions and canvassing and talking to people, um, everyday people uh, on political issues and in some campaigns, which I think really helped me to uh, orient my politics towards issues in, in, in working class and building a working class alliance, building an alliance that encompass people from all racialized gender background, and also more importantly, understanding the, uh, the working class struggle and with the uh, ecological environmental uh, justice. So I would say, you know, that's the uh, important learnings that I had in Canada. Obviously, when I moved to the United States, I had to, uh, you know, be uh, reckoning with the uh, Obviously, not only the ongoing settler colonial violence happening here, the anti-black violence happening in the United States, but also reckon with the fact that I am under the belly of the beast, where uh, it's United States is having uh, its military might, is it's having five hundred plus military uh, bases across the world, and um, at the same time dominating the world economy. Uh, I would say knowledge sphere as well with hundreds, thousands of people uh, coming here to studies, supposedly receiving an education in the United States. So I would say that I have to constantly remind myself what it, what is it is the thing that I'm doing, I'm doing on a daily basis, what kind of impact I'm having in my position. So I'll pause there. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned a lot of things there and hopefully we'll come back to to some to some of those in more detail as we kind of uh, go forward um, uh, but I think it's uh, important to recognize all of us recognize where 
where where we currently are located and and the roles that we have as as individuals in an academic environment on at York University, um, and um, our desires for the changes and the and the the impact that we want to see that our work has. Um, so it's it's nice to hear your your perspective, your your growth, and how you've you've managed to navigate these these uh, systems. Um, I was hoping that you can maybe chat or tell us a little bit about, you know, in your research, you mentioned Karl Marx, you mentioned Michael Foucault. I was hoping you could maybe chat a little bit about, and you just talked about organizing and, and working class people. I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about the challenges uh, in, in today's world in, in, in utilizing these frameworks, those, 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 um, those names get tossed around very easily these days with uh, a, a lot of the lack of understanding of the, the, the context and, and the meaning to those words. So if you can tell us a little bit about um, um, that, that work. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think you are very right that names are tossed around, uh, I think. In, in our age where academics are acting as if they are doing entrepreneurship for themselves individually, names becomes valuable tax. And uh, I don't want to, to use the word capital because a lot of times folks use capital in a different way than what Karl Marx was was trying to convey. So let me let me start with Marx and then I will get to Foucault. I would say that these two people are very different. They're very different people, not just the era that they were uh, they were born and being active. I would say that they have they have been treated very differently uh, in academia in in the global north in Anglophone academia. I would say that Marx is one of the most vilified figures in the academy, and I would say that his work and thoughts are often distorted, wrongfully dismissed as, as committing the fault of determinism or class reductionism with quotations. And uh, I was, have to also say that in my experience in, in North American universities, very few people, if any, teaches Marx in for example, in kinesiology department, in sports studies. In my case, no readings on Marx was assigned. And if I were to read books for, uh, for myself, if I were to read sports sociology books, he occupies often less than a chapter. He was His contribution would almost always be glossed over as, you know, people talk about class and his name will be tossed around for maybe three pages and then thereafter uh, gets subsumed in, in other discussions, in other discussions about identity and culture and so on and so forth. So I would say that I became interested in Marx through my community organizing experience and, uh, and I think the reality of people trying to uh, build solidarities on the ground. Uh, I would say that pushes me, pushes me to regain a trust and deep understanding of his writing on capital and capitalism. And and I would say the important question for everybody who are doing those uh, 
who are engaging in those efforts are like ever we are all from different you know backgrounds and we all have different identities you know people of color can have their own issues women have their own issues lgbtq communities have their own issues and of course if everybody just organize around their own identity there's obviously advantages but of but unfortunately it fragmented you know uh group people into 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 groups of lesser power so i would say that um i was particularly interested in uh struggles and i would say looking back in history where different people adapted marxist thoughts into their practice and efforts and trying to build a new society under specific local conditions and i would say many of those struggles going back to history they were under the double you know uh threats or shackles of colonialism and imperialism so uh understanding the adaptations of marx marxist thoughts in different revolutionary struggles across the world and i would also say that fortunately and unfortunately uh for our generation the economic and financial crisis the worsened condition of working class people the ecological breakdown they create a new interest on marx not only in the, the academy but beyond the academy in the last decade or so maybe particularly post 2008 the financial crisis i would say that um the reality of people's life the living conditions the climate change the ecological breakdown makes marx's diagnosis of capitalism becomes more relevant ever more urgent so i would say that that's the path i have taken in engaging with uh his work on capital so on the other hand i would say that uh foucault is 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 someone that widely regarded as a critical scholar in the academy when particularly when the uh the radical contingent of scholars in the academy retreated to postmodernism and poststructuralism in a night in post 1970s 80s when the uh when liberal capitalism became the uh the end of the the end of history where uh class and class struggles were never going to be mentioned there came Foucault there came Foucault being the radical scholar that many people aspire to uh to learn from uh, i have to say that in my personal experience i did read some Foucault and uh as a sign in my classes uh i do recognize that his his contributions his comment on a knowledge on discourse and on power has important values for understanding specific uh, disciplinary practices in sport and physical activity um and i have several reservations regarding foucault i would say that um 
One is that some of these post-structuralist, post-modernist works, they're inaccessible. And uh, maybe Foucault will not be uh, happy if I categorize him into post-modernism or post-structuralism, but, but here we are. They're inaccessible. They, they, they have a lot of jargons. And that's one thing. The second thing is that we need to understand the context of which the French school, the quote-unquote French school, these philosophers, these radical theorists emerge. It was, it was the, the post-1968 emergence of these, of these scholars when, uh, when there was an opportunity to, uh, to engage in radical class politics in the summer of 1968 and the aftermath. But we can all look back and see, say, for example, what Foucault did in those historical junctures. And I say that to say that in his work, again, the fundamental contradiction of, of capital, the uh, class struggle, is nowhere to be found. And uh, every everything can be a source of power. Everything can be a, a source of, of discipline and, and surveillance. And and therefore, what are we what are we doing as a collective? What where is the where is the struggle of finding its orientation? We don't know. We don't know. So uh, I would say that to summarize, I understand the usefulness of Foucauldian theory, but I would not associate myself as a Foucauldian scholar. And if folks are interested, I encourage you to uh, maybe engage with uh, Gabriel Rockhill, a scholar at Villanova University, his critique of Foucault. And one of those articles is titled Foucault, the Faux Scholar, F-A-U-X, the French word for false, the full radical, Foucault, the full radical. Yeah, thank you for... Um... Yeah, going through your engagement or maybe critique of Foucault and um, and Marx and, and helpful to also, you mentioned Gabriel Rockhill. Yeah, I'm super interested in more of these critiques because I think Foucault, I've noticed Foucault being taught quite a lot in kinesiology, but you're right, Marx's uh, theory does not seem to be one that has been applied or taught, um, which I'm very curious about. Um, um, I think something that we talk about in our personal lives as like uh, sociocultural kinesiology students is this sort of um, push and divide between like the hard kinesiology sciences um, and the sociological study of sport. Um, so I'm curious about your own experience as a critical scholar, whether in kinesiology, or I, I know you're more specifically working within sport management. Um, yeah, what has that been like for you? Are there Have there been any challenges or opportunities that you want to speak to? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I would say that in my own experience, uh, there is indeed a sort of, I would say, siloing of, of you know, different sub-disciplines under the broad umbrella of kinesiology. And uh, uh, I would say that obviously different sub-discipline within the umbrella of 
kinesiology have their own focus in terms of their research interests, the questions that they want to ask. And uh, I would say that it's, uh, I would say it's, it's easy to uh, dismiss that some other field or disciplines are, are um, not doing critical work or, or some sort. And uh, I would say that throughout the years, I have to, I have developed an understanding of, you know, understanding the bigger, I would say, political economy of academic knowledge production. Is it's which means understanding the the material conditions underlying knowledge production happens within each university within each department. Meaning that we ask people, we I, we ask the question, why are these folks employed in these institutions? What are they tasked to do? What are their responsibilities designated by the institution to do? So with that, I think we can come to terms with the fact that, you know, uh, 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 in in most of the academic disciplines, in most of the academic disciplines, the mandate is to is produce research, is to produce research to solve, you know, uh, different in, different questions that have a you know a empirical implication would have an impact on quote unquote practice or stuff happening in the industry in the industry. Our sports psychologists are preoccupied with how to uh, enhance athletes' well-being. God bless them. I think that's very important. I, our exercise physiologists are preoccupied with how to, uh, you know, uh, create uh, knowledges in enhancing the, the the more physiological attributes of athletes or just lay person who are engaged in physical activity. I think that's that's fine. I think those knowledges are all very valuable in their own right. At the same time though, we, we need to consider again, the uh, who are using those knowledge, who, to what extent do those knowledges benefits the, mass, the vast majority of people? So I would say that, um, that is why I, I, I propose that we take a step back and not only look at the processes processes of knowledge production within universities, within the parameters of productivity with grant seeking, with, with ranking, so on and so forth, but also ask question, to what extent do those knowledges benefit the vast majority of people and what are what the what are the consequences of those knowledges? As for myself, I would say that unfortunately I'm not I'm not a physiologist, I'm not a psychologist. I'm I'm more interested in understanding the the now the 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 particular issues of you know workers getting adequate compensation, the particular issues of how um, what are the social Econ economic and ecological consequences of sport as a as a as a as a spectacle as a as an industry. So uh, I would say that 
um this is not this is not going to be the most uh popular subject to pursue in uh within the academia within the i, I would call academic industrial complex it's not going to be the most welcome uh contribution from the eyes of the uh uh owners of the professional sport industry or their corporate sponsors but i would say that um everybody needs to find their own um position within within the this may sound a little bit too grandiose find their own positions within history within the history of of struggles and uh, i always have to take take a step back and think about the struggles starting 500 years ago those struggles those unnamed people who sacrificed themselves for uh, fighting for a better world in the last five centuries and uh, i would say that if i can make a moderate contribution lift the fancy veils of the sport industry and making more people understand the, their relationship with the, with the sport industry i think um that would be great that would be great yeah. you know we we need to we need to, i need to navigate those those tensions you know of of doing those work but not needing the recognitions from the uh, establishment that represent the interests of capital. And I have to also say that going back to what I, what I talked about earlier in terms of like my own personal trajectory, it's something that I cannot not do is after I learned about the, uh, you know, the, the, obviously the, the colonial violence against indigenous people in North America, after I learned about the early Chinese migrants to both Canada and United States, build the railways, but then got kicked out. And thinking about why people migrate to different places, think about the the interconnectedness, the, the inevitable nature of struggles of people in different parts of the world i think the the choice for me becomes very clear it's it's is 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 to be an internationalist is is to engage in 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 efforts that you know creating cultivating this this consciousness that someone's a working class people's life and fate here in the united states is inevitably connected to those other folks in in the Philippines, in China, in 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 the Caribbean, who who may have a relative who is working in the sweatshop of Nike and producing the sneakers that that working class people in the United States are desperate to buy because that may be a that may serve as a as a as a as as something that is very important for them after they finish one day's toil at at their work so i'll pause there unsurprisingly you provide a very uh nuanced understanding of yourself your positionality and everything else that has encompassed your world i must i must it must be from the, the all the history that you've read and that you've been interested in um and i'm jumping ahead here but i think um it's very hard to come across that today in in um in north america 
we live in a place with a, especially first year students, university students who are studying kinesiology and are in their first year to intro, intro to kin, um, who don't see sport as a, a, as a place that has any conflict in any way, shape or form. It's just a place for people to show off their best competitive selves and, and be, you know, pure winners or losers. And that's, um, I think that's where we find a lot of the students that we're teaching, where we're, we're teaching a, a first year kinesiology class. And, and it's, like I said earlier, it takes a lot to get to where you are now. And, um, and we ignore, or we often ignore the abundance of, 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 that we have of everything, not just, you know, abundance in general, we're, we're oblivious to, to what we consume uh, nine out of 10 times. So often we have students telling us, what is, what does, what you, you've just talked for half an hour and what does this have to do anything with sport? This is, this has nothing to do with the NBA. This has nothing to do with me wanting to be a, a, a athletic therapist. This has nothing to do with anything. How do we try and build some solidarity? How do we try and find ways to, um, or have, do you have any experience with, with finding ways to engage with students in, in trying to recognize these, how these issues are connected and how, um, there needs to be, um, you know, a more coordinated effort amongst us collectively to address the challenges that you spoke of earlier, the ecological challenges, the, the cost of living, you know, um, those are things that if you want to live in Toronto right now, it's very, very expensive. And, um, sport even today is used as a tool for development and how, Oh, we're helping, we're helping youth get jobs for the future by teaching, by giving them, you know, access to sport and using sport as a tool to sort of, um, um, encourage this future employment. So, Walk me through some of your uh, your your thoughts or experiences in uh, in my ramblings here. Wow, I would say that I uh, I'm really uh, I'm really moved by that question. I would say that if only everybody, if only there are folks in every you know, department across across the continent are asking those questions explicitly. So um, let me say that, um, yeah, I would say that it's a, it's a, there's no easy answer. There's no easy answer. But I would say that you pointed out something that is very significant is that it's not easy to get to where I'm at. How to interpret that from my perspective is that to get to where I'm at itself is a lot of privilege. There is a lot of uh, access to different types of learnings. There is this, there is this say security of being able to worry about these kind of things while you know not having to worry about let's let's uh you know walking down the street whatever absolutely. it may be absolutely absolutely so i would say that as educators i remind myself that i cannot walk into the classroom assuming that 
I know more than them in the sense that I my what I understand as the issues is a form of knowledge that is superior than what the students are bringing in with their personal experience. I I can't deny their experience. I can't deny the existing observations they have had within society with with sport. So I would say that that's where things needs to begin is that I need to understand where they are at. I need to understand you know uh I'm not here to uh lecture you. I'm not here to to uh carry over some superior form of knowledge. So what what does that mean in, in practice? I would have to say that uh I now work in a Division One uh, university within the uh, NCAA. I would say uh, a lot of students come to uh, the sport management program. They want to have a career within the sport industry, not as athletes, but as workers, as 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 staff members behind the scenes, working for a fancy sports team, uh, whether it's in college or in the professional leagues. And uh, because that's that's what they have um, absorbed in the 18 years, 19 years, 20 years thus far in their life. And that brings them a lot of joy. And I, I have to also argue that, yes, I think watching sport do bring people a lot of joy. If we are just focusing on the aesthetics, if we are focusing on the uh, suspense, the competition, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, I would say that uh, some of the openings that I, that I try to uh, that I try to uh, use in terms of quote unquote radicalize the students or making them more aware of the of their own fandom, of their own perception of the sport industry is, I would say, from their to start from their uh, work experience on campus. Many of them, they are told that in order to work in the sport industry, you need to network. You need to uh, put yourself out there. What is one way to do that is to, is to work for the college sport teams and other uh, sport organizations around uh, as interns, as interns. And uh, sometimes, I would say most of the time, they are unpaid internships and their work, they spend 40 hours, 60 hours a week in those, in those positions, may not get paid because that's what they told a necessary step to be uh, acknowledged to be recognized by someone higher up in the sport industry, and uh, by 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 showing those commitment, those work ethic. One day they will reap the reward. So I would say that it's not hard to uh, to make them realize the contradiction in that situation because. They recognize 
they recognize if I talk about the the issue of labor struggles in sport, if I talk about, for example, the college athletes' struggles for、um, fair recognition of their work in the U in the U.S. right now, obviously, the issue of name, image, and likeness of college athletes is a very popular topic amongst. Everybody who engage in college athletics, some of the students students will come out and say, "What about us? We are the we are the forces behind the spectacles of the NCAA sport events and and and, and tournaments that are shown on TV to millions of households." Across the United States, but nobody sees us. We are the people who are doing laundries. We are the people who are, who are, you know,、uh, collecting equipment for for the teams. We are the we are the people who are who are the backbones of the spectacle. So I would say that maybe that's also my luck of being in a D one school and having. This uh, uh, proximity to to the to the working conditions of not only the interns but also the the athletes, the staff, so on and so forth. So that's that's one example. And I have to also say that one thing I recognize is that you know uh, uh, this generation, those those young folks born after year two thousand. When they when they enter college, I recognize that they have they still have a a I couldn't call it innocent, but I I I would I would describe it as they have a raw understanding of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, and、uh, I would say that I had to use a lot of Examples within the sport industry to showcase that not everything is, is, is not everything is good. Not everything is. Not everybody enjoys or having a enjoyable experience within the sport industry. Whether is athletes or whether is is other stakeholders. Whether is fans looking at the ticket price. Looking at the ticket price. How many tickets can you afford to go to the game? That That, that for the team that you love, so I would say that that's the benefits of the of the the multi multitude of of contradictions within capitalism, and it it does creates a lot of contradictions,、um, so that we can we can tap into. So I would say that everybody's location in terms of educators, we it's is different. We need to properly situate. Ourselves in in the local context and figure out what are some of the openings that we that we can take advantage of, and、uh, and 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 utilize those openings in slowly、um, supporting our students to grow. And again, going back to your earlier point, it's not a it's not a job of one day. It's not a job of one week or one month. I always say on my first class to the students, your learning is not linear. 
Sometimes you reflect back. Something happened three years ago. Someone said to you something three years ago. Now you have the equip. The you are more equipped. You have the theoretical repertoire to make sense of it. So I think we don't need to be overtly ambitious of that and、uh, understanding that we're we're planting seeds. We're planting seeds. Hopefully they will. They will grow. They will grow、uh, at some point. The spring will come. Yes. Yes. You made some very interesting points, and you talked a, a lot about you know、um, student interns, and you talked about those those challenges、um, that many of those students have. It seems like this sport management industry has created like a, a reserve army of labor, let's call it, for people who really, 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 really want to work in sports. So these working conditions are often obviously poor, and there's no desire for your D1 school or any other. Professional sport organization to improve these living conditions or these working conditions for these individuals. So I think those are the, you're right. Those are avenues where we can try and find and, and explore these、um, these spaces to hopefully、um, open new 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 venues of thought for 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 individuals.、Um, I like how you also said that it, you know a level of like innocence in a way, and I don't know if it's I don't know if it's innocence, but or it's it's like maybe it's a, a level of like invisibility. Uh, and like historical injustices are often ignored, and you know, and often the responsibility is placed on just that one person who's done something wrong. It's like, oh, it's 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 Larry Nasser. He's the problem with gymnastics. He's the one who did everything, and it ignores the the systems that are that are in place. And it's not just like these systems that are oppressing individuals, but they oppress lots of people. So I, I guess. I kind of maybe try and turn to、uh, what we mentioned earlier, or a topic we mentioned. I guess the idea of like settler colonialism and and how it sort of intersects with sport. And、um, there's like a need for maybe a, a a shift in our epistemology in in sport for management or sport for development or sport in general、um, to because it's been described very often now as a tool for social change. It's a it's a sport is a way that we're going to. Achieve positive outcomes.、Um, can we maybe、uh, unpack a little bit about how these historical injustices have been ignored, and and and、um, how settler colonialism exists within our our, our sporting context and our sporting world today? Absolutely. I wanted to briefly come back to your point about sport is lauded as a tool for development. Yeah. Yes, I would say that、uh, sport, along with many other things, have been lauded as a tool for development. And、uh, in the context of, you know, we don't need to give people the opportunity to develop their own economy. We don't need to give people the sovereignty for them to empower themselves. Instead. We deliver some tools. We deliver some、uh, some items, some some materials, so that you know. We hope that those those kind of things will will be the magic, so that you know every all of a sudden everybody will be literate. We in, deliver、uh, we deliver communication skills through sport.、Yes. Here you go. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I would say it's 
it's it's uh it's kind of important to to return to a uh to a analysis of historical materialism and understanding that what is, what is sport what is the role of sport within the uh within the broader uh spheres of social production within the broader spheres of of the of the economy i would say that sport exists because there are significant social surplus at first in europe at first in europe certain segments of the people they don't have to work anymore because of the value extracted from the population certain people started to have the uh, freedom and the time for leisure to engage in say playing or watch sport as a spectacle so i would say that uh, uh today sport is still if we are talking about those elite high performance media mediated type of sport they are a part of the entertainment media a uh, spectacle so i would say that expecting the expecting sport to aid in development i would say it's a uh, i i'm i'm sure that folks are with great intentions but uh maybe a more effective way is to lobby or to ask your government particularly those governments in the developed part of the world to relieve debt of those developing countries to not have your diplomatic policies that are like jackboots on the neck of the developing countries so the people in the global south will have will have the liberty to develop their own economy so uh, i would say that let's let's properly situate sport let's properly situate sport maybe lobbying maybe uh, exert pressure to uh, to your government so that your government is sending less troops and 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 aircraft carriers to other to other people's uh backyards so that you know they they have more uh security and liberty to uh, develop their own economy not aside coming back to settler colonialism in north america uh, i would say that um yeah i would say something to consider is that i i draw from glen coulthard and uh uh another mohawk scholar alfred i think they talked about the uh relationship between colonialism and capitalism and understanding that settler colonialism is intimately connected with capitalism and uh in 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 the case of sport we need to understand that um from maybe two perspective materially and let's say epistemologically um the the impact of settler colonialism of course i think understanding that with land disposition with land uh disposition there are uh institutions built upon indigenous land some of them are associated with sport universities are built on indigenous land and uh sport facilities 
and many other uh, facilities associated with sport, such as uh, parks, and uh, people derive derive benefits uh, from engaging in physical activity. They are also a legacy of settler colonialism, and uh, one have to start ask questions: What does that mean for indigenous people who are whose homeland has been uh, invaded for centuries and for whose homeland or still being occupied by these external forces? And obviously, associated with that violence and erasure of of different sorts. And um, I would also say that um, understanding the role of academia, understanding the discipline of sport management, for example, you know, let's let's ask in our uh, classes, let's ask in our conferences, how is the reality of settler colonialism, you know, being reckoned with? When we teach management of sport, when we teach about um, the relation, the relationship of you know people organizing a sport events with a local community, do we mention the fact that the event is taking place on indigenous land and this process is ongoing? And do we ask the question, what does that mean? For the activity that is being organized, of course, one can argue that, oh look, they make land acknowledgments. Oh look, they have already a coach who is indigenous. They already have a player that is indigenous. And I have to ask, what does that change? What does that change? Does that change the fact that there are hundreds of Indigenous communities in Canada are still on boil water uh, advisory. Does that mean anything to those people who are forced into homelessness in urban centers in Canada? And uh, yeah, and we in 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 a lot of conferences, people start a conference with a land acknowledgement, this and that, and then what else happened? People go on to to talk about how to uh, you know make the business more profitable. So I would say that um, those are quite, those are like, kind of yes. It's like the equity, diversity, and inclusion into what? What are you being included into? And you're being included into a system that is often uh, still not allowing you to to be. Uh, yourself you're still you're still shackled by 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 this system even if you do often try to make change um you're 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 limited by your ability you're by this the system's too strong for you to uh, make that change so it's like what are you really being included into with these with these one indigenous player or this one indigenous coach the 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 system is still there the colonialism is still there it's not it's it's it, it exists you can't just uh gloss over it Absolutely, absolutely. I think we all need, we all are acknowledging the significant symbolic value of those inclusion. We cannot underestimate maybe the psychological benefits of watching someone who look like me 
competing in the most elite uh, competition. I don't. I think we are not denying that. We are not denying denying that. But I would say that, you know, if those organizations, those teams are claiming that we are a team embodying the value of social justice, and we're embodying the value of now this word has becoming uh, more and more empty decolonization as if we're we're doing decolonization i think we need to sit back and and exactly like you mentioned we ask what for what 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 is the uh what is the end goal here do we, can we have all women being on the board of you know on the board of five Fortune 500 companies, can we have more? Uh, all peoples of color sitting on the the International Olympic Committee, can we have more? Uh, you know, folks who are LGBTQ, who are with disabilities, sitting on uh, some board of some sort. What does that change? What does that change? Is the question that we need to reckon with. Yeah, and I think your article on making settler settler colonialism visible in sport management does a good job in showing how even how a lot of these processes and institutions are founded on continued colonialism and how they how it reproduces itself. And I wanted to sort of shift over to your article on imperialism because I think not only is it a process of control over the land in which these things are operating, but it's also operating at a global scale. And I think the conversation on sport for development is one way that I think our, our field is, is starting to talk about imperialism, but I'm, I'm curious about your own article and your own work um, within sport itself. How are these things manifesting then? Like how is imperialism manifesting in, in sport as we know it? Thank you, thank you. And uh, I would say that one of the most important points that I would I would say that people tend to miss is as if settler colonialism exists on its own, as if it's not a system subsidized by the violence happening elsewhere, by the settler colonial states. Of course, their they, they, their presence is an ongoing violence for people within the settler colonial state. But I, I think, as you alluded to, I say that they have to uh, be de- depend on the subsidization. I, I call it subsidization of exploitation and violence elsewhere. So let's talk about imperialism. I started that article asking this naive and innocent question i asked why if there were uh such a an important uh boycott such a you know uh, uh, uh you know uh such a strong call for the russian athletes and teams to be banned from international sports events because russia supposedly invaded ukraine in 2022 i asked the question was there such a movement back in 2003 when the United States invaded Iraq? And of course, there are many other examples. I asked the question, was there any call 
for the teams of French, English, Spanish, Portuguese, and Dutch, so on, so so forth, to be banned from international sports competitions for the the violence and the crimes that they committed for centuries. Some of them going on to this moment. I asked that I asked that naive and innocent question. So I would say, what does that mean? Is that, of course, there was no such a thing, of boycotting teams from the United States and those European countries. So why is that the case? I have to go back to、uh, think about and think with theorizations of imperialism. In in the sense that. Um, I think first acknowledging that sport historians have talked about imperialism in sport in the sense that during the expansion of British and French empire to other parts of the world, I think sport was used as a civilizing tool, quote unquote, civilizing tool, as a as a tool of discipline of other people. In other parts of the world, and later on, United States took up the torch in、uh, exporting basketball and baseball elsewhere. I think we can all see the different manifestation in different parts of the world. But I think that's the we can call that the cultural arm of imperialism. I would say sport can serve as a cultural arm of imperialism. But I think what I the point I try to make in that paper is that. We need to situate sport today, like I mentioned before, as a part of a you know entertainment media complex within the global economy. We need to focus more on the material conditions that underlies the spectacles of sport. So, what I mean by imperialism in their article is that obviously it was. It was a theorization of imperialism, not saying that oh there is queens and kings because there are no more. There, not to say that there are one country or a, a couple of them occupying vast majority of the territories across the world because that's no longer a strategy of imperialism. What imperialism is 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 the is to simply put. Transnational class rule is the is the control of key sectors of the economy,、uh, finance, communication, energy resource, and military power by I would call a transnational capitalist class. But many of them, obviously, based in traditionally recognized as the West. So what does what does that do? Is that the relationship between the unequal relationship between the the South and the North, the former colonies and the former colonizers, really do not change, even without an overt political domination, even without the presence of colonizing armies, because the economic relationship. The economic relationship of inequality continues because the core areas of the global capitalism 
still imports cheap raw materials and goods from the developing world and export products to the world market, and many of them being the developing countries. So to, what does that have to do with sport? Is, that's in, that is important because if we think about the uh, professional sports leagues across the world, and if we think about the Olympic Games, we need to recognize that these events or the leagues, they are not financially sustainable without corporate sponsors. These corporate sponsors are transnational corporations. Let me go back again. What I'm saying is that these leagues and events are really not financially profitable if they only count for ticket sales, if they only count for you know, TV subscriptions. To make these events, global sport events, sustainable, they really rely on transnational corporations. And what are these transnational corporations? They are the major players in producing goods for in the, in the global economy. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. And it's absolutely. not just it's not just the corporations, it's also the subsidies that are actually being given by cities across across the country and you know you mentioned in uh, Edmonton and the subsidies that come across to build a stadium and and it's it's uh, money that can be going towards um, funding food programs for kids in school uh, to improve educational outcomes but it's actually going towards uh, lining the pockets or the bottom line of these large corporations and these and these large large leagues we have the FIFA World Cup coming to Toronto in in um, uh, very soon, and um, you know our 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 municipal government has decided to backstop any losses by the private corporation that that is that is uh, operating there. So uh, we as citizens, as taxpayers, we will be losing money. So uh, if if the games lose money or the company loses money, we will be paying for it as well. So it's not just the corporations, it's also our, our, our state as well that we need to we need to talk about too. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I was about to add that it's the, it's the transnational capitalist class and their delegates in the government. It's those, it's those folks who are dictating how sport events are managed and operated and how the product which is a form of entertainment is produced so i would say that i first talked about the economy and obviously talked a little bit about how the 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 corporations and their their friends in in different nation states they are the they are the real masters behind the sport events and uh and again a lot of these a lot of these events are subsidized the the fact that these events are being staged are subsidized by the exploitation the surplus value exploited from workers in the global south and obviously in the global north as well so it is with this condition that we need to reckon with the question, how can international solidarity can be built? How can um, cross-national alliances 
be built. So uh, I would say that another example I always use is I ask my students to take a look at their uh, um, sport bags, their jerseys and sneakers. Uh, where Where is it made? Where is it made? And can you take a look at where are they made and how are these workers being paid in different countries in in Pakistan, in Nicaragua, in in, in the Philippines? And uh, why are those workers have to work? Why do they have to work in, in a condition of very precarious protection, very little protection of their rights as workers compared to the workers in the global north. So what are some of the ecological consequences of having those manufacturing processes taking place in the global south? So it's it's both the exploitation of global south labor and the environmental externalities of those productions happening in the global south, whereas the benefits, the revenue flows to the company headquarters of the global north in North America. And we also need to account in the fact that for the consumers who are buying those products, the price they pay is built upon that super exploitation that I made. And um, imagine those workers in the Philippines and the the Caribbeans are being paid the same amount of dollars per hour by the North American standard. Can you imagine how more expensive those prices might be to be sold on the street of Toronto, New York City, or Los Angeles? Not to say that it's cheap to live there. It's, it's already impossible to live there for average working class people. So, um, that's my example of considering the uh, the consumption of sport product. So um, I would say, lastly, I wanted to just briefly mention. You know, you mentioned grassroots sport, local sport. I think there are in North America, grassroots and local sport are you know definitely more developed in other parts of the world and. Uh, uh, if I may say that, going back to a point that I made earlier, it to someone to have the opportunity to engage in local and grassroots sport, they need to be in a relatively secure position economically. They need to have the time. They need to have the free time. They need to have some access to, to sport. And I would say that uh, not every society not every country, not every econ economy is in a position for the majority of people to do there to do that. So I would say that in a sense, the presence of grassroots sport at certain parts of the world enjoyed by certain parts of the population there is depend on the absence or the lack of the similar type of activity elsewhere in the world. It's it's uh it's uh there is a relationship there is there is not a there is not a it's not like 
Let's improve together. Let's develop together everywhere in the world. For some places to be developed, quote unquote, there need to, there must exist underdevelopment. Going back to Walter Rodney's book, "How Europe Underdeveloped Africa," I think it's there is a there is a intimate dynamic relationship between certain parts of the world people can enjoy. Their leisure time was grassroots sport, but somewhere else, those people needs to work twenty hours a day in manufacturing the sport equipment without having rest time. In order for some other folks in other parts of the world to enjoy sport, it's a it's not a bright a picture that I that I'm drawing here, but、uh, it's my observation. Well, it makes me think of. The first part of our conversation, which is, you know, I think we were talking about how、um, some folks and students engage in sports studies, maybe not being interested or not understanding the responsibility of、um, everything that we do, whether it's moving to a settler colonial country or studying in a in a different place or engaging in sport. And I think that your analysis is. Really speaks to the importance of accountability, and it's impossible to partake in the activities we do without understanding. I guess the responsibility of seeing the ways that communities are harmed or are subject to violence—it's terrifying how much goes under the radar on、um, the cost, the like human cost of hoarding resources or、um, yeah, engaging in sport. Absolutely, absolutely. I I I agree. I would say that it will easily break you down if you think that you are the only individual that is gonna carry that responsibility. Instead, I would say that that speaks to the importance of of、uh, thinking about ways of of really building a collective、uh, alliance and and power and and network of. You know, engaging in the struggles together, whether within the、uh, university or beyond the campus, beyond the walls of these institutions. One thing I would like to highlight is that we can't ignore the fact that the two of you are graduate student workers, using your using your time in、uh, creating this platform and.、Um, I would also say building up some space for critical conversations. So、um, I appreciate、uh, I appreciate you doing that. But I also like to highlight the fact that、uh, graduate student workers are often the uh, ignored uh, group of people within academia, even when their labor are being exploited by the uh, institution and.、Uh, So I would say that I do wish that more of our colleagues across institutions in North American、uh, on North American continent would be able to、uh, stand in more close solidarity with graduate student workers,、uh, particularly in those areas where、uh, anti-union sentiments are, are prominent. So、uh, I heard that. In your institution, you're entering a collective bargaining phase、um, soon. So I, I, 
I imagine that it will be a tumultuous period uh, coming up for not only you, but many of your uh, peers. So uh, I just wanted to highlight that and, uh, and also encourage more of the uh, colleagues within the rank of professors to uh, be more active in advocating for graduate student workers. I know coming back to our earlier conversation, people float around different names and tack with themselves different brand of politics. I would say a, a most uh, practical, approximate way of engaged in class politics is to support the, the graduate student workers and not exploit the graduate student workers that work with you. So I will end with that. Thank you for your solidarity. Thank you for your support and encouragement. And, you know, through through these through these types of uh, efforts to, to share and learn, we hopefully we'll have opportunities to work together in other ways as well. So thank you so much. Thanks again to Chen Chen. We've really appreciated his time today. And thank you so much for those of you listening in. Make sure to give us a follow on Twitter at Sport, Social Justice, and Development if you haven't done that already. And stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again for being in conversation with us. Music for this podcast was provided by Lobo Loco and Broke for Free.